Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Drivers! Start your engines! What for? Because you hit every other damn thing out there, I want you to be perfect. When I'm driving, I got a guy on the radio who talks to me. He talks to me. He didn't slam you, he didn't bump you, he didn't nudge you, he rubbed you. And rubbing son is racing. Hey race fans, welcome to the Hoobazoo Radio Network and welcome to Drafting the Circuits. My name is Frank Santoroski, I'll be your host for the next hour as we talk about racing this week. Joining me in the studio, I've got Richard Uden, Louise Torres, and Seth Eggert. Fellas, how we doing? Doing well. All right, so... So, uh, real quick, I just want to, want to bang out some headlines here. Uh, we do have a guest waiting in the wings. I'll introduce him quite momentarily. But uh, uh, the, the number one news story that's uh, really dominated my thoughts is uh, Alex Zanardi. Uh, Zanardi, who was a standout um, during his competitive days in racing, uh, you know, had a very horrible accident, accident in 2001 where he lost both his legs and rebounded uh, from that. And his story is just amazing. And he's uh, been, a you know, um, competing in the Paralympics, where he's won uh, several gold medals in the uh, paracycling, was involved in a very um, bizarre kind of uh, accident where he was uh, paracycling and, and lost control and, and weaved into oncoming traffic um, and hit a truck. And his injuries were quite severe, um, injuries to the face and, and the head, as well as uh, brain trauma. And so he's in a medically induced coma right now. All of our thoughts are with him. We know this guy's a fighter, um, but this is this is a heck of a fight, um, and it just I, it pays me to the core um, that this has happened uh, to a guy who doesn't deserve any more tragedy in his life. So uh, I, I just wanted to mention that we're all thinking about uh, thinking about Alex and praying for a speedy recovery. Um, also, top headlines: Ryan Blaney uh, won the great uh, great win at Talladega there, um, and but the win was overshadowed uh, by controversy with um, the so-called uh, noose found in the garage, and we'll get to that later. Uh, but I have a very special guest. I've got PR marketing professional and award-winning author Jade Gers with us. Jade, how you doing today, man? Hey, Frank. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, now, now, Jade, you've been in motorsports for oh, probably close to three decades now, yeah, right? You've, a little uh, over that, yeah. A little over. Yes, you worked with <laughs> Anheuser Busch. You were the you were the PR guy for uh, uh, Dale Jr. You worked with uh, Mazda. You worked with Ilmore. 
Um, you've worked with uh, Kevin Harvick some. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've you've penned some books here. The book Beast is a is a must read for any IndyCar fan, especially of the kart era. A uh, very popular book. Uh, you've penned um, a book about uh, Dale Jr. called Driver Number Eight, and you've also co-authored autobiographies with both Daryl Waltrip and Dale Jr. Now yeah. your your latest project is you've uh, penned the um, autobiography co-authored with the late Don Andretti, and that book will be released, I believe, in September. Is that correct? Yeah, we we have a, a quote official release date of September first, but uh, honestly, we're we're doing pretty well on the printing, and my gut feeling is it's going to appear before that. Uh, my goal had always been for it to come out before the Indy 500. And, Sadly, that's probably going to come true because the keep... 500 has been so delayed. Yeah, yeah. So now, when you were growing up, when you were young, were you, were you, have you been a motorsports fan all your life, or did you, with your work into marketing, kind of um, move into to auto racing as a as a profession, and then kind of grow a love for it there? No, I, I've been pretty much uh, a fan and obsessed with it. Uh, I can almost give you the exact date. Uh, because I was three years old and uh, my mom went into labor with my little sister and they weren't they didn't know what to do with me so I ended up going to my aunts and she and my grandpa ended up going to the dirt track in Topeka Kansas and uh, I was hooked ever since that was uh, that was it for me I think at that age I probably enjoyed it because I got would get a free snow cone every night at the track but uh it uh, really turned into uh, something that I was passionate about and something that I've been incredibly lucky lucky to have been involved in for so long. Now, your some of your early jobs right out of college, you know, I, obviously you, you studied marketing and PR. Were, were they in auto racing? Did you kind of have to work your way into it? Or, or did something uh, neat fall somewhat. in your lap? No, I, I grew up uh, around the auto business. My dad owned uh, auto dealerships, but uh, uh, really always uh, enjoyed racing, but never really thought what, you know, wow, I could do this as a career. Um, so I, I worked for a company that produced videos. I worked in retail. I managed a music store. I also have a background in music and then uh, my hometown, I mentioned earlier, Topeka, Kansas, they built uh, Heartland Park, Topeka, and uh, I couldn't believe that suddenly this, this major facility with road course and drag strip uh, was open, and it's a long story, but I ended up working there, and uh, the rest <laughs> the rest is history. Fantastic, man. Nothing, nothing wrong with doing what you love and being around what you love all the time. So, Absolutely. Yeah. so now I want to talk about the new book. Uh, the title is Racer, uh, John Andretti, as told to Jade Gerst. Now, you uh, you were the impetus for this project. You pitched this to John. Am I correct? Yeah. Um, I had met John for the first time uh, in 2004. Uh, I was working with Budweiser and Dale Jr., and Dale Jr. was burnt uh, pretty badly in a sports car accident. So uh, DEI brought in John as the backup driver and uh, for Pocono, a uh, race at Pocono. And I really enjoyed getting to know him, and, and it was clear he was a great storyteller and seemed to remember all the fun details of all of his stories. 
And so that's that's kind of where we first connected. And then, uh, sadly, he was uh, diagnosed with colon cancer in uh, early 2017. And I, I followed it closely, but, uh, I, I, you know, I wouldn't say he and I were close friends. We would occasionally uh, stay in touch. Um, I wish I thought of it, but uh, in late uh, 2019, it was like, uh, you know, the, the proverbial light bulb went on. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this this is someone that I really need to uh, uh, to do a, a book with because, uh, you know, great family, great storyteller, great life. So uh, I reached out to him and immediately he said, oh, this would be great. Uh, this can really do some good to bring more uh, awareness to uh, for people to get uh, colonoscopies and colon cancer screening, and uh, that's that's where it started. And uh, we uh, ended up working. Uh, I would go to his home here in uh, Charlotte, the Lake Lake Norman area. Uh, I would go up and see him, and we'd go to the basement and turn on the recorder and kind of just uh he'd tell stories and i'd ask questions <laughs> and uh some days uh we would go for hours and hours and uh it just for me just like just as a fan it was great but uh as a writer it's been it was really rewarding he's was such a good storyteller such a good guy that uh it's been great that i've been able to you know put this together and sadly after he passed worked with his wife, Nancy, and his son, Jarrett, uh, on putting the, the package together with uh, uh, the, the printer and or excuse me, with the publisher. And, uh, you know, really excited for it to come out. And I think people will really enjoy it. Oh, I'm sure they will. I mean, I've always thought of John as a very remarkable human being. You know, I mean, he was he was a great race car driver. Yeah, but just a very remarkable human being. And I I had some interaction with John. The first time I met him was back in the 90s. I was, like, doing some PR work with Hutch Strickland and McDonald's, and uh, he was driving for Kelly Yarborough at the time. Uh, but the one thing I always remember about John is that it wouldn't matter. Even on his worst day, you know, if he just wrecked the car or, or, you know, blew a piston or something, or he just stubbed his toe, if somebody somebody <laughs> came up to him and, and wanted to engage him, the biggest smile would come across his face. And it, and it was genuine. It was never fake. He was just always happy to interact with people. And, um, you know, I think that that also leads us to um, his uh, his his charitable work. And I understand that a percentage of the uh, profits from the sale of, of this book are going to uh, Racing for Riley, which is his favorite charity. Yeah. Yeah. Ten percent of all proceeds. Uh, and it was something that he was very passionate about with uh, for almost 25 years. Race for Riley was a program that he started and uh in his lifetime, they raised more than uh, $4.85 million for uh, the Riley Children's Hospital there in Indianapolis. And uh, there's a lot in the book about why he did that or, or what it meant to him. And it, it's really – I tell people this is a book about racing, but honestly it's about family and friends and about how we treat each other better. Uh, you know, with so much tumult in the world, it really has a very good meaning, very uh, positive uh, message. Yeah, I think a lot, a, a lot of to hear John's philosophy. Right, I think a lot of folks could use a very, very positive read and a positive message right now. Now, 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 yeah. Seth Louise and I, we all write to uh, 
to, to a very you know varying degree. Um, but uh, I'm just really interested in, in, in the writing in the writing process. Yeah. Um, and so you're Jeez. so when you're co-author. I can write. I just choose. Not to. <laughs> oh, Richard! I Richard, like I always, I always leave you out. But uh, now you, as a co-author, right? That's several steps up on the literary ladder from, say, say a ghostwriter. So, how much of your input is in in some of these books? You know, the John one and the the ones with Dale and Daryl. Yeah, it 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 varies. Uh, the the books I did with with Dale Jr. Uh, I was this p- uh, PR guy for years, and so a lot of that was put together because I was literally there with him, or you know, in the room or in the vehicle when you know when whatever was happening. So that was put together a lot by just my historical notes from the uh, you know his his couple of seasons there early in his NASCAR career. The one with Daryl was great fun because uh, I was always at the track and he would was announcing for Fox and in that era they also did the what was then the Bush series and uh, so my agreement was one af- one hour after the Bush series I would meet Daryl at his bus his his bus driver would cook us a meal <laughs> and we would sit and and talk and I would record. Uh, uh, that uh, it, it's uh, similar, similar with John. I, I should probably add it up. My guess is I probably have 45 to 50 hours of interviews uh, with him uh, that I recorded. Then it was a whole lot of transcribing and then taking all those and putting them in a, a narrative. The, the goal is to use as much of his words as he spoke them, I, and I've been thrilled that his family have agreed that when you read the book, you hear John's voice. You you know you really sense uh, his voice and how he would tell stories. So, as a writer, when someone tells me that, that's about highest highest praise um, is that they can hear John when they they read the book. Yeah, that is quite a compliment. Now, as much as I'd like to dominate the interview with all the questions, uh, Seth, Seth would, uh, <laughs> Seth would like to, uh, chime in. Seth, go right ahead. Well, since you were just talking about, uh, being able to hear John as you're reading, essentially, is there a specific quote, uh, that stuck with you that you think will stick with readers? Um, it, you know, there, there's a lot of them. He, he, had such a dry sense of humor that a lot of his best work was was sort of short quips about uh, one of my favorites is he talked about driving injured and then comparing that to when he was diagnosed with cancer and he said pain is when is just your body telling you that it's alive I, I found that very interesting um, he, he's very sil- philosophic about his racing career, um, and he, he really spends a lot of time uh, talking about his family, dad, his uncle Mario, great uh, after about he and, and Michael Andretti growing up as best friends, and um, it, it just the way he tells stories about. The people that that he loved is is really a neat uh, piece of it. So um, I, I'm drawing blank on other quotes right now. I'm, I'm uh, 
uh, trying to think of others. But uh, but anyway, that. Uh... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Spring training is right around the corner. So come for the games and have a ball in Arizona. With world-class resorts, unbeatable dining and nightlife, amazing scenery, and endless outdoor adventure. Make your visit unforgettable. Plan your getaway at myspringtraining.com. That's uh, a big part of it for, for me was that uh, he weaves in the, uh, the great stories about racing with uh, stories about family and, you know, being around his uncle Mario and all of that. So it, it's, it, it adds, I think, a lot of depth to the book rather than chapter one, I won this race, chapter two, well, I crashed <laughs> in this one. And there, there, there's a lot of that, too. There's a lot of uh, details from his career, but uh, it just it, it just became a joy to, to put it together and uh, finish it uh, just because it has, uh, I think, such emotional resonance. So it, uh, it was great. Now, I know one of the major takeaways from this is for people to go and get a colonoscopy, go and get checked, check it for Andretti. But mm -hmm. is there a specific uh, takeaway that you hope readers uh, will have about John as a person? Um, I, well, I've already talked about the way he talks about the value of his family, but in dealing with his sickness or dealing with cancer um, he was very open with me uh, which I was was glad about about what he went through whether that was some of the just the unbelievable surgeries that he had to go through or um, you know chemotherapy you know he says most people go four to six times and they they can't do any more and he actually had 24 rounds of chemotherapy. So it's just stunning uh, with the way that he dealt with that and the way he didn't let it let him get it down. He never worried about uh, why me, uh, that kind of thing. So um, I just, you know, I would sit there listening to him talk about this stuff and was just amazed and thrilled of the, you know, the aspects that he shared with me that, uh, you know, that certainly appear in the book. Now, my last question, uh, at least on John Andretti, uh, was there anything that he regretted as far as that would be in the book? Uh, it regretted as far as sharing too much or, or regretted uh, in his life, whether on track or sharing too much. Well, uh, he, early on established that he was going to be as open and honest um, as, as he could. Um, and so I appreciated that and um, 
sadly, as we reach the point of the book, you know, starting to take form and come together, um, he had a really rough last couple of months. So uh, he really only got about 80 percent through uh, of the manuscript um, until he just sadly wasn't well enough to continue. Um, and he didn't really object to anything. He had me change a couple of times. He used a few too many curse words, <laughs> which I thought was great. And uh, a few others where uh, he just, uh, wanted, for instance, we removed particular driver's names <laughs> from certain anecdotes. But uh, honestly, he was very open and, you know, really wanted to tell the full story. So, um, but I had asked him about, did he have regrets in his career? Because he's one of these guys that, that would drive anything. And, you know, he won in NASCAR, IndyCar. He won the 24 hours of Daytona, uh, raced at Le Mans with his uh, uncle Mario and cousin Michael. You know, he raced NHRA top fuel cars. I mean, this guy literally would drive it all. And I had asked him about that. Did the fact that he changed so much hurt his career if he had to do it over again would he um you know would he do so and he said no he said if i had that ability to you know to change things i would change my life by going to get a colonoscopy at age 45 instead of waiting until it was too late so um so that was his reply to my direct question about you know regrets in his career now louise uh, you've got a question or two yeah, speaking of like all the, the multiple disciplines that he raced, when what and your did he told you by chance kind of like his favorite racing moment because one of the things that came up to mind is looking at 1991 when he won in Australia, a Surfers Paradise. Then of course the 500 with all the Andretti's, Michael, John, Mario, and Jeff ran. And then after the 500, he got a podium with Michael and Mario in Milwaukee. Does he have yeah, like a the, of it? Well, the 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 podium of all Andretti's at at Milwaukee is something that that he brought up and spoke a lot of. Um, I also worked with um, Michael and Mario on forwards for the book, um, so they have a segment in the first of the book along with Richard Petty and AJ Foyt. Which you know that's four pretty good, uh, pretty good guys. Um, and Michael, Mario, and John all talked about how meaningful it was that day at Milwaukee to have a you know all the Andrettis filling the podium. I will say, John and Mario both insist that they won instead of Michael. Apparently, there were some scoring issues that day, so uh, they both insisted that uh, they should have been on the top step instead of Michael, but. Uh, um, it, it's it's very fascinating. You talked about um, all four Andretti's, uh, Michael's younger uh, brother, uh, Jeff. Uh, there were four of them in the Indy 500 for a couple of years, and that meant a lot. Um, the It's funny. You mentioned Australia, his first IndyCar win. It, he said it was weird because for some reason he was in a bad mood that day. And he got up on the podium, and he said uh, Rick Mears and, and Bobby Rahal were up there with him, and they kept telling him, come on, man, enjoy it. you got to enjoy this. So he said it really only sunk in later how cool it was to, to win there in Australia. But the single victory that, that he sort of 
got the most pride was winning uh, at Martinsville for Richard Petty and Petty Enterprises. Um, he talked about how much that meant to him, how much it meant to Richard and the team. And so, um, you know, the family stuff is very prominent, but I think on track, he would probably would have said the, the Martinsville win and being able to give Richard Petty a ride to victory lane. So, um, a lot of that, uh, store, those stories are definitely in the book. And a follow up to that, when it comes to writing a, a book, especially an autobiography at a tell all, what, what is kind of like in the mindset you have the process of doing so trying to get these tell all stories, guys, you mentioned it's about 40 to 50 hours of recording. Just, Describe up the process from an author's perspective, because I've always been intrigued about that. Yeah, it's, you know, it varies. Um, I mentioned I did a book with Daryl Waltrip, and Daryl would get wound up and start telling stories. And I, I would think, oh, this is a great story. This is going to be really good. And then uh, I would transcribe it, and then I would meet him the next Saturday for the next round and he'd say, oh, yeah, last week, that story, I can't tell that until so-and-so dies. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of edited uh, edited, and, and I always told him, I said, man, there's some great stuff, uh, you know, still in the raw transcripts. But uh, but that was that was how I worked with Daryl. Um, but John, John was very open. There was very little that. Um, like I said, that he, he, you know, he really didn't read through and say, "Oh, we can't say this or that." It was very small, minor things. Um, but from my standpoint, uh, you talk about a tell-all. Um, you know, I, I've been in the sport thirty years, and I, I believe I have a good reputation. I have uh, uh, what I think is uh, integrity. So my goal is never to go out to, you know, to trash anybody or to, you know, share gossip and things like that. Um, and so it, it, the, the challenge is to, um, when you work with someone like John or Daryl, is to take their stories and essentially put them in a narrative that makes sense or is that entertaining. Um you know, versus just uh, uh, hours and hours of, of stories. So, um, so that that's always my goal. Um, not that I don't love good gossip here and there, but uh, I, I've never had the intent of of writing anything that would would hurt anyone. Uh, and I, I, you know, I would always defer to my, uh, you know, co-writer to. Uh, to help me know where that line is based on their comfort level. So I don't know if that answered your question, but, uh, no, you did. So it's all good because that's one of the things when it comes to the writing aspects, when they try to, when I focus on those race reports for Motorsports Tribune, or even eventually some, they do a memoir about my journey so far and vice versa. It's kind of like figure out how other people approach these kind of stories, especially for a public, for a publication like yours that you've done over the years with Daryl, Dale Jr. and John. Yeah. You, you know, and it's interesting uh, in, in the case of John, um, we had uh, certain members of the family read the, read the manuscript uh, again to make sure that they would approve it. And uh, 
Um, his mom was worried that he would have made fun of her and that, and that kind of thing. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I tell people, you know, this is John's story. Uh, when you write a race report, you, you stick to um, the facts or you stick to what happened or who crashed on what lap and, you know, who won and all of that. Whereas this is uh, the, the telling of this person's story. Um, you know, my role is to help them tell that story in the most entertaining way possible. It's not really my job to, um, you know, play devil's advocate or, you know, in, in, insert my own views or things on it. Um, and so that that's very important to me that you know, when people read it, um, you know, I guess my writing kind of has some style and trends that they may recognize, but the voice, the, the, the voice driving it page after page is, is John Andretti. Now, now, Richard, you've got a question as well. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Dale Jr. there. Cause I think you, you say you've written two books on, on Dale. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, you know, you've worked with him for a number of years there and um, you know, I've sort of, my background is in formula racing in Europe and uh, mm -hmm. I, I sort of got into working in NASCAR about five years ago. And a number of the guys I work with, uh, worked with, uh, Dale Jr. at uh, DEI. So you probably, mm -hmm. probably know some of those guys. But, um, Absolutely. He obviously he's now, um, I think he's on the ballot for the, um, hall of fame next year, is it? I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I just wondering, yeah, looking at it from the outside, um, which I did for a long time. Do you think that Dale finds the sort of family name a help or a hindrance to his career? Um, it, it can be both. And actually, John Andretti kind of has that same thing. Yeah. You know, you're, you, you're the nephew or you're the son of a legend, of an icon. And I think early on, um, it, it must have been tough for Dale Jr., but I think he also learned early on that he he should be his he could be his own person that he yeah. he he knew that if he tried to drive like his dad or tried to you know just basically be a carbon copy that 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 wasn't the best best way to approach it um and and i i always tell a small anecdote that i think tells a lot about dale jr's personality when he was young and, and started coming to the track with his dad, and then when he started driving late models in his late teens, people would rush up and they would want his autograph. And he thought, well, they're just asking because of who my dad is, you know, what what my last name is. I want them to be able to ask based upon who I am as a person and what I have mm -hmm. achieved on the track. And I, I think that hit him very young and I, I think that really um sort of shows even now in his personality uh you know he's not uh, a replica of his dad he's his own man and no. i i admire that uh from him but uh you know it's funny because that was when i was brought in uh again really for his entire budweiser era the red number eight car um budweiser was a perfect sponsor because they told me and they told him just be real. Be yourself. Don't be yeah. like the the other drivers where, you know, you get on mic and you just read a list of 10 sponsors, <laughs> which which I hate. Yeah. Uh, and and so he had 
a supportive sponsor uh, that that really wanted him to be his own person and not be some sort of, uh, you know, polished <laughs> salesman, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and it's interesting you, you mentioned that because it's like, you know, some of the engineers that I've worked with were uh, with Dale at DEI, and, mm-hmm. and some of the stories they tell was, you know, he was one of the first guys that would Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Was really seriously into the concept of like a driver doing data analysis. Mm-hmm. You know, they're talking about he'd come back, for, they'd be flying back from a test somewhere, or they'd be in the hotel or his, his um, uh, you know, trailer, uh, you know, after a test day. And you'd be sat there, you're know, streaming through the data. And at that time, I guess this was like early 2000s, you know, no other driver did that. Um, yeah. Or very few did. And it was almost that went again, as you said, against the public perception of him. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, to a certain extent, I'm sure he had to play up to this idea a little bit of what the public expected from mm-hmm. the sports point of view. But also, you, you know, he wanted to try and carve his own mark in it. And some of the stories, you know, about him being the guy that would sit there and ask the questions of the engineers and really look at data and, and try and gain advantages from that. So it almost went against a little bit of the public image that maybe some people had of him. Yeah. You know, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, I had come from uh, being with Ilmore Engineering in, uh, in IndyCar before I worked with Dale Jr. In IndyCar, uh, the drivers were much more involved because of all the telemetry and all the data that, sure. that, that is always streaming on the car. Whereas NASCAR, you, you know, you're <laughs> to this day, you're very restricted on what you can uh, you know, what data you can have, you know, during an official event. Um, yeah. I, I, so I know he was very fascinated by that. He also, he, he goes way back um, as a, a computer guy. He's very, very sharp about computers. So to him, the data was, was fascinating. He loved to, you know, really combine what the data said versus what he was feeling in the car. And uh, so yeah, I always found that uh, to be pretty pretty interesting to uh, see him do that kind of thing yeah so now we're talking about uh dale jr and you and he you and he were oh you know connected at the hip for what seven years uh yeah, <laughs> yeah eight, <laughs> and you and, years, and you managed yeah. to to write the book um in the red that, that chronicles the um mm-hmm. the entire 2001 season um now yeah I, i've done some of the pr work uh with NASCAR, mind you, at a at a smaller scale than than the type of things for you do. And I, I know that's a very it's a very time consuming, sometimes thankless job. Um, but I'm just wondering, how did yes. did you were you like planning this book through that whole season, um, and, and try to squeeze it in well, in your off time, or or was it something that you transcribed later? Well, it, it's interesting because I had I had just mentioned I'd been working with Ilmore and Mercedes-Benz, and I really learned a lot from Mercedes-Benz, and they are great about taking their history and helping it infuse their current mm-hmm. 
you know, their their brand image. So, <laughs> I, you know, I'd been immersed in that. So I that's my state of mind coming over to work with Budweiser and Dale Jr. So my proposal to Budweiser is, you know, they'll never again be Dale Jr.'s first Daytona 500 or his first victory, even though at that point we <laughs> We couldn't have expected it to turn out with as many wins that first year's boss as as it turned out. And I tried to convince them that uh, that reality TV was the new thing and that we should do uh, sort of a documentary style. And I'm afraid we were just ahead of our time uh, at that point in 2000. It wasn't as big as it is now, so no one wrote the check. But I continued to keep uh, all kinds of notes. I had a different notebook each race weekend and everything we did and everything went into that, the chatter on the radio. Uh, and after a couple months, I had a big stack and he and I sat there and I said, well, maybe we can do a book. <laughs> and so it was as simple as that. It was originally, uh, my idea was something completely different, but we had all this material, and uh, so that's what led to um, driver number eight, and it's a very sim- similar process for the, the In the Red um, that is kind of the follow-up from the 2001 season. All right, now, Seth, you'd like to jump back in? Yes. Uh, since we're talking about Junior now, uh, what would be the most memorable race that you worked with Junior? Woo. There were a lot of them. <laughs> um, actually, it probably would go back to 2000 and the um, the All Star race. Um, it was just it was such a great win, and it was just this this sort of just maybe the the ultimate height of the original Junior Mania, as they called it. Um, but then the team, you know, we had a great time. The team was spot on junior was was driving great and then his father ran across and and joined everyone up on the victory stand and i know that meant a lot to dale uh and then as he and i were led up the stands to go to the the media center up top uh the press box we were stopped and told uh about the bridge collapse and so we had gone from just this you know, excitement and, and ecstasy to suddenly just, oh, my God, you know, you just drop to the floor. Um, and so it, it definitely was uh, a, an, an evening that had a little bit of everything. But uh, I, I so I guess if I look back at all of them, uh, that one is probably, uh, for me anyway, the most memorable. And I, I know it meant a lot for Junior, for his dad to come join him and the team. Uh you know, on the, on the victory podium. Now I know junior wrote his own book uh, or co-wrote it uh, recently. Uh, yeah. Did you give him any advice on that or uh, have you ever thought about doing a follow-up to driver number eight? Yeah. The, the book in the red really is the follow-up because it, it's, it takes, so it takes up the next year. It, it basically, follows driver number eight picks up where it left off um and i i had always been willing and anxious to do another and but I always held off I, I kept telling him when you're ready you let me know uh i reached out would have been 20 ugh, 2011 
And uh, he said, look, I'm just too busy. If you, you want to go ahead and write it, that that's great. So he was fine with me um, writing um, the in the red. Um, and then the one uh, about his uh, concussions, he did with uh, Ryan McGee at the end. And uh, Ryan is somebody that I really respect and admire. And so uh, I guess if anybody else is going to write with Dale Jr., <laughs> I was not upset that it was uh, was Ryan McGee. So, so yeah, Jr. and Ryan worked on the uh, – the uh, book, I've, I've gone blank on the, the title, but basically where he shared what he went through with his uh, concussions and the struggle with that. Uh, speaking, of, speaking of Dale Jr., I know you mentioned about the reality documentary as that they were planning. It reminded me of also a different one around 2000 that was like MTV did one on Dale Jr. at the tail end of 2000. You recall? Yeah. Oh, that yeah. time period. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we um, again, Budweiser was a sponsor. So they said, look, here's the audience we want to reach. And this audience, they read Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, they read Playboy magazine and they watch MTV. So that was really that became my goal or my that was they said, you know, it's up to you. <laughs> so we really approached them all with uh you know, with a lot of energy and, and all of that. And the very first one was MTV Cribs, and um, we had scheduled it uh, long before his father's accident. So it took place. He decided he wanted to do it. Uh, it was about two weeks after his dad had died. Um, and uh, if, if you've ever seen it, people remember that the garage door opens and he drives his race car out of his garage. And we did some other fun stuff, too. But that really established a good relationship with uh, with MTV. They did uh, True Life, I'm a Race Car Driver. And it was originally was going to feature a lot of different drivers. And in the end, uh, it was mostly uh, Tony Stewart and Dale Jr. I think they came out as the most compelling uh, and interesting drivers. Uh, and then from there... I'm drawing blank. They came and spent a weekend with him in Atlanta, and I can't think of what that show was called. But we didn't get nearly the attention for that as we did for the MTV Cribs and, and True Life. So it really established him and NASCAR uh, to a, a whole new audience. So we were thrilled to be a part of, of all that. Going back to in the IndyCar side of things, when I think of the 90s time period when it comes to Penske and the Merce Elmore Mercedes time period, I think of it as kind of like the serious establishment, but also the absolute roller coaster ride from the highest of highs in 94, then 95 onwards. It was just a weird time period for that entity. Yeah, and uh, the, the 94, the, the top secret engine, Mercedes engine, uh, I wrote about that in the book Beast. Um, Beast basically is the the secret story of how that came about, how they did it in secret, uh, and then what happened when uh, the rules changed for the following year for 1995. Um, it's funny because uh, everyone was thrilled to talk to me about 1994 because they had 
won the poll and they won the race. Uh, I'm not sure I would get such an enthusiastic response from 1995 stories, but uh, it, uh, it's been long enough. Uh, you never know. That might be something that I can uh, look into in the future because it is very compelling. It's not a uh, the same story of glory for Penske, but uh, it's very, very uh, compelling as far as what, what went on that month uh, when they didn't qualify. Now, Richard, you'd like to jump in again? Yeah, I have uh, a, a quick question. Um, you mentioned there when Budweiser got involved, they had a, a target audience there. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts, having been so close involved in the PR and the marketing side of, of NASCAR and, and the drivers, where you think NASCAR's target audience is going? You know, who do you think they're appealing to in the next five, ten years going forward? Well, I, I'll tell you, I think a lot of what has happened the last couple of weeks um, will hopefully play a role in being, uh, being accepting by a wider audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things we tried to do with Dale Jr. is to break out of that, uh, is to do, you know, you mentioned uh, MTV. and we, we wanted him on uh, as many different unusual outlets as possible. Um, and so that was always our goal is to widen that, that demographic or make NASCAR appealing at that time. Um, they, they were playing rock music on the bumpers in and out of commercials versus country and Westerns. And Junior was thrilled with that. I mean, it's such a simple thing, but it was part of our philosophy is that, you know, we want to appeal to, a wide array of people and we ended up doing uh, we did a cool photo shoot with Ludacris and some other bands uh, rock bands rappers <laughs> and all that um, and it, it's purely because you know Dale Jr. Uh, he loved all kinds of music and so that was you know that was easy for us to you know get him hooked up on that kind of stuff so yeah. now uh, with where they're at it's going to take time it's not an overnight sure. thing and you know, we're seeing all the controversy this this week, but in yeah. the long run, um, the way NASCAR will survive is by expanding their audience, not just to keep drilling down on that same, you know, group mm-hmm. that's been with them for 30 years or however yeah. long. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. You look at the um, news and the media coverage of, of NASCAR, you know, at the end of the season, you know, once the champion has been decided and all that sort of stuff, you know, probably that will be the up to now anyway. We don't know what's going to happen in the next six months, but the sort yeah. of the third, the tertiary level of, of news reporting, you know, with the first one obviously being everything we've seen in the last couple of weeks with Bubba Wallace and the like. Mm-hmm. And then the Ryan Newman accident at Daytona uh, at the start of the year, you know, both Ryan's accident and, and the Bubba stories have been, you know, front page news on the BBC in the UK. And I've had mm-hmm. friends of mine from the UK contact me on both of those scenarios so it's interesting how you know nascar still has that the actual racing if you like still isn't its primary selling topic yeah it's the big accidents and it's the personalities and it's the controversy and it's everything else that goes with you know i've talked on this on this show before you know you go back to you know the 95 or sorry 2015 season you know, who won the championship? Well, 
people would have to sort of, oh, I'm not sure, but, you know, <laughs> who had the big accident at Daytona in the July race? Oh, that was Austin Dillon. You know, people mm-hmm. could tell you that in a heartbeat. You know, whereas actually who won a race or who did this or who did that? And the racing perspective is not as memorable to the general public, at least, yeah. than, you know, some of the racing statistics. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have thought of a lot about that kind of thing over the over many years. Uh, I, I tell kind of a funny story about my ex-wife. Uh, she thought racing was kind of stupid when we first met and we're going out. But uh, every year I'd go to the Indy 500. So I told her, you know, go with me, see it in person and see what you think. So yeah. I took her, took her to the driver's meeting and she suddenly found that these goofy race car drivers that some were really very handsome. <laughs> and, uh, so, so the, the next day in the race, suddenly she had three or four drivers that, that yep. she cheered for and yep. one of her drivers won and, and she's not a huge fan, but it made her somewhat of a, a racing fan. And yeah. it, it's, it's the similar concept of, uh, you know, you've got to develop a connection in some way, shape, or form. It's why when you go to your grocery store, they're sampling cookies or whatever. You you got to get them to try it first. Not everybody's going to buy it, but you, yep. you're going to increase your cookie sales by yeah. getting getting it in the hands of people. So, I mean, th- those oh, are two yeah. very simpleton examples, but that's always how I've viewed it. Is oh, uh, there's any doubt. Yeah. No, and you think you you know, in, and you know, TV audience figures are are, are, a, are a strange number, but you know, you look at the, the was it? I think it was this year the first race post Daytona was was Vegas, wasn't it? They changed the calendar, and I'm sure mm. they had more viewers than they would have done because of Ryan Newman's crash and people. Oh, yeah. I want to watch this. Is this going to yeah. happen again? You know, yeah. crashes. You know, as horrible as it is to say. Yeah. Um, you know, that, <laughs> that is a huge, a huge part of the sport, and. Um, yeah, it, it's 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 very interesting, you know. Even my wife's the same. She doesn't have, has never had much interest really in in racing. But um, you know, when I was working in in Europe, we went to a, a test. I was working for the Williams Formula One team, and we went for a test. And Valtteri Bottas was driving, and we go around the garage, and she's like, "Oh, how's Valtteri doing now? Every race, you know, we watch on TV. Where is he? What's he doing?" Because yeah. as you say, they make that connection. And That's right. It's about getting people out there, you know. Um, one thing I used to love doing is going to the uh, World Rally in mm-hmm. Wales, in the UK, you know. And I thought, oh, God, my wife's not going to do it. You, know, you stood <laughs> up there, it's like 40 degrees, it's raining, you get covered in mud. Oh, God, oh, I might as well invite her. And she loves it. She loves it. And we actually, you know, a couple of times we've actually flown back from the US to the UK just for that event. You know, oh, is, great. as you say, it's about breaking that down and, mm-hmm. and getting in there. And it's interesting how, you know, you, you, you the modern PR thing, I think, in at the moment, it, you know, you almost get these sort of bland, monotone, sort of almost like voice recorders, don't you? As you mentioned earlier, <laughs> yeah, and they were very conscious right. about not doing that. Yes. And you need to make that connection. You need to have that sort of, um, and I hope, you know, the events of the last two weeks probably have alienated some fans, but hopefully it's brought a lot, lot more in than it, than it has alienated. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. You know, I think auto racing in general, it, it doesn't resonate with young people like it once did. And, and, and I think no. that, uh, you know, to, to the points that you, you both made, 
uh, about taking your wife to the racetrack. Uh, my wife is the same way. She will not watch a race with me on TV, but she looks forward to the Indy 500 every year. And we always have the best time, and she and you know she knows who to cheer for. She knows all the drivers, but she won't sit and watch a race with me on TV. Yeah. So in, in a sense, uh, you know, I feel like like NASCAR in particular um, has been really thriving due to those billion dollar contracts with both Fox and NBC that are set to run out in the next couple of years, and they're not putting enough focus on that local activation uh, to get folks in the seats. At the venues, because yeah. that's that's how you really um, draw new fans. I you know I, I grew up a Formula One guy, sports car guy, Indy car guy. Um, I, I got hooked on NASCAR when I first went to a NASCAR race in the late '80s at Martinsville, and and I've been watching NASCAR ever since. Otherwise, yeah. I never would have paid attention to it. Uh, but but going going to the track, yeah, and I just I, feel I like that's, that's where that's where the sport needs to go is getting more people to the track yeah. to to get them hooked. Well, mm-hmm. here's a here's a here's a question for you from the PR side, the marketing side. And again, we've discussed this on the show in previous weeks and months. Um, you know, you say taking people to track. Well, what about taking that to the people? You know, having inner city races like you do in IndyCar and Toronto, and I mean, we did have them in Baltimore, but and, and some of those places actually take the sport into the you know into. I mean, they had a Formula One track plan for New York. I'm sure that could be resurrected for an Indi- for a NASCAR race, or you know you probably couldn't get a NASCAR around Long Beach, but somewhere like that, you know, take it into the city centres. Do you think that would be more appealing? Because at the end of the day, it's, these are some of the world's fastest billboards. You know, would you think that would appeal more to sponsors to have it the sport in these bigger cities than somewhere like Pocono, which is in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, I I. Excuse me. It it is interesting because you have, uh, as an example, uh, I I did a lot of work uh, for several years for Mazda. Their U.S. headquarters are uh, in Irvine, California. So the Long Beach race was incredibly important to them uh, because it was their, you know, their opportunity to bring all their employees and all of Mm -hmm. that. And I, I think it's the same way. For companies that use their sponsorship to bring guests and clients and all that in, and certainly the bigger cities, you have more of an opportunity to, you know, choose from a wider array. Um, I don't know. I, I I'm mixed on NASCAR on a street circuit. Uh, <laughs> they uh, they do pretty you well. You have to make sure they all at least one finished, wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, I do love them at Watkins Glen and and the uh, oh, I still want to call it the Bush Series because I worked for Anheuser Busch. But <laughs> Xfinity Series, you know, their race at Road Road America is very entertaining. So yeah, as is yeah, their uh, race at Mid Ohio, um, is another good good uh, Xfinity yeah, race. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, it, it's funny because it, it's. Uh, sometimes I do interviews and I <laughs> say things and I think, well, that's a very simpleton answer. And you always got to be careful of people with uh, simple answers to complex issues. But uh, I, I feel like the NASCAR management and leadership now is very open minded. They're uh, you know, more aggressive on making changes. And, and uh, you know, it's early in the game. We'll see how it turns out. But just for me, purely as a fan. I, uh, you know, I'm encouraged. So 
we'll see what happens. All right. So, Jay, yeah. you've uh, obviously right now the biggest thing on your plate is promoting the new book. Um, but I'm just wondering what's next for you. Do you have another another project uh, in the back of your mind there, another couple of projects? Um, nothing I can talk about. All right. Thanks for that. Um, <laughs> so uh, but I, I have been looking for my next book uh, topic. I'm, I've been in racing a long time, and I'm no longer of the age where traveling full time on the NASCAR circuit seems fun. So the book writing right now is a little more up to my speed. And, and uh, so uh, hopefully some things will come together and I'll have a fun new project here very soon. But uh, uh, but I, I, I enjoy doing the books and hopefully uh, once uh, John's book is out, everybody will get a chance to take a look and learn about uh, quite an amazing guy all right so now that book is published by octane press and it's going to be i know it's going to be available on amazon on both hardcover and kindle what what other outlets can we uh yes. can we uh look to see this book uh, available for purchase the the generic saying is wherever you may find books uh, <laughs> so, uh you know <laughs> we we really hope that uh, bookstores come back strong once the you know the virus is a little more contained um, and uh, but uh, right now uh, octane press you can order direct from them that probably means you're going to get the book uh, as early as possible um, and amazon you can order it there and they're doing better they they really were slow on books for a while because they were shipping uh, high priority things uh uh, because of the the virus and and all of that, but uh, uh, I'd I'd say if you've got a favorite bookstore, uh, you know, help support them, and uh, you can certainly pre-order it uh, anywhere. But uh, certainly, uh, Octane Press or Amazon will have it for you uh, right now. All right. Now I know you did it. You did a special event. Uh, I believe it was last night. You did you did a Zoom Zoom yes. call with uh, both Mario and uh, Jared Andretti. So uh, just talk to me a little about a little bit about that. I didn't I had to work last night, so I didn't get a chance to to kind of dial in. But uh, tell me how that went. Yeah, well we we wanted to do something for uh, the big fans and for the people who ordered the book early, uh, and so we we kind of were trying to think of ways to get the fans involved and we came up with this idea of inviting everyone who pre-ordered the book uh to join us on zoom and we did that last night it was uh, mario andretti uh john son jarrett who's a racer uh both sprint cars and road course uh and myself and then our host was uh dylan welsh who's uh an uh, up-and-coming broadcaster, but also races occasionally, and he was the host. And we really just kind of just talked for an hour about John and his life and about racing. And we took – I think we had – we ended up answering about 25 of the questions from the fans. And uh, it was cool. For me, it was like sitting around with a beer with these guys just telling stories. <laughs> so, and uh, I, I think we're going to do more of that. Uh, might do some media stuff uh, that is not – restricted only to the pre-orders but uh, uh working on that now on possibly doing some more fun things with some pretty big names that uh that meant a lot to john all right now uh jay you are active on social media folks can find you on both facebook and twitter 
Uh, so if, if, yes. if, you know, you can go ahead and follow Jade on Twitter if you want to see if any of these other events are going to be coming up. And, Jade, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, and I wish you the best of luck. Uh, we've got about four minutes left in the show. And, Seth and Louise, I, t- I told you I'd let you all talk about Bubba Wallace, so you got two minutes apiece. <clears throat> well, first off, what happened with Bubba Wallace, uh, to set the timeline, on Sunday, a crew member of his found a garage uh, pull rope that was tied in the fashion of a noose. He notified the crew chief, who notified uh, NASCAR, who then started an investigation and went to uh, local law enforcement, who brought in the FBI, thinking it was a hate crime. Uh, Bubba Wallace was informed later because drivers are not allowed in the garage due to the COVID-19 situation. Uh, NASCAR made a statement. uh, Jimmy Johnson and Kevin Harvick organized a show of unity uh, pre-race on Monday. Uh, After that, on Tuesday, uh, it came out that the pull rope had been tied in that fashion since at least October of last year, when Paul Menard was in that very same uh, garage stall. Uh, These garage stalls are new. They were built between the Talladega races last year. Uh, Otherwise, Bubba did nothing wrong. Uh, RPM did nothing wrong. That was the only pull rope tied in that fashion at the track. The FBI, uh, in their statement, stated it was fashioned like a noose. Uh, And NASCAR was in a no-win situation. Some people say they jumped the gun. Some people say they uh, blew it out of proportion. If NASCAR had tried to hide this and keep it secret and then, you know, say everything afterwards, if it had leaked out, it would have been a mess. So no matter what... This was going to be a lose-lose situation unless it was actually intended to target Bubba. That being said, it still doesn't explain why it was tied like a noose or why on Saturday a noose was found hanging from a tree at Sonoma Raceway. Yeah, this whole thing is – it's brought out the best in some people when, when, when you can see the, you know, the show of solidarity or the show of support from the other drivers. And it's brought out the worst in some people with some of the uh, – comments that I've read on social media that I just, I just find very disturbing. So, uh, and, 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 you know, anyone that, you know, everyone wants to call Bubba, uh, Jesse Smollett and, um, you know, say that uh, he somehow planned this hoax to drive publicity himself. I, I think they're way off base and I, I find it quite deplorable. So, uh, uh Louise, you got 20 seconds. That's all. It's honestly, it's all, it's all I you need, need, but boy, it's just, I have no, I have no comment. Well, due to the fact that it's just a, I can't fully describe the word other than just one phrase. It's just a ping pong effect of just mixed emotions. That's all I got to say about that. My mindset is just focusing on the race at hand of Pocono. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to Pocono. One of my, one of my favorite tracks on the schedule. So, uh, but with that, guys, we're out of time. So I want to thank you, uh, Seth, Richard, Louise, Jade. Jade Gersh, thank you so much for coming on again. You folks that uh, listen to us, uh, thank you. Uh, look up, uh, look up Jade on Twitter. Follow him. Um, buy the book. It's called Racer, uh, the autobiography of John Andretti as told to Jade Gersh. 
Uh, I want to thank the Hoobazoo Radio Network. I want to thank Spreaker, iHeartRadio, and Google Podcast. And I want, especially want to thank you folks who listen to us week in and week out. Um, until next week, good night. Who? 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 Who?